This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we have with us Master Scholar Gary Saul Morrison. Professor Morrison is Professor of the Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University. He is without a doubt one of the leading specialists on 19th and 20th century Russian literature. And he's also perhaps one of the few, if not the only, writer who has written both for the New York Review of Books and the New Criterion. And today we are discussing his newest book, Wonder Confronts Certainty, Russian Writers on the Timeless Questions and Why Their Answers Matter, published by Harvard University Press. Welcome, Professor Morrison. Thank you so much for having me. Professor, why did you write this book? Oh, there's a story behind that. It wasn't actually my idea. An editor from Harvard Press named John Kulka um, approached me once and said, uh, I have in mind the book you were born to write. Well, what's that, I said. He said, well, the whole significance of the Russian literary philosophical tradition for the past 200 years. And I said, you can make it really vibrant and live. But I said, you know, I'm not an expert on the 20th century. I'm not prepared for that. Only, I only do the 19th century. And he said, well, just take your time. And so we signed a contract, and about eight years later, I'd read enough you know, to write it. Um, and it, I tried to do it to get across what makes literature generally, and Russian literature in particular, so thrilling and such a great source of wisdom and insight about the human condition. That's what Russian writers think about mostly. And... Um, so I tried to convey that excitement and, and vibrancy and urgency that's so much part of the tradition. Professor, if your book has a thesis, what would it be? <clears throat> oh, a single thesis. Well, it doesn't have a single thesis, but one thesis you know, would be that you can understand the Russian tradition by grasping it as a dialogue between the ideologues on the one side who thought they knew everything, who were certain about everything, and the writers who saw the complexity of the world and were highly skeptical of that. But because this is Russia, with a tendency to extremism, the ideologues were particularly extreme. That's why they eventually invented totalitarianism. Um, and so we can see all the questions that they asked they were so certain about we can see their logical implications taken to the extreme point 
that in other countries they probably wouldn't do. And so by magnifying these questions, seeing their real implications, you can learn a great deal about the human condition that you wouldn't if they were not taken to the extreme. What do you mean when you say, quote, I portray the Russian tradition as a dialogue of the dead, unquote? Uh, yes. Well, the dialogue of the dead was a literary genre that began in antiquity, but has been practiced all through the centuries right up to the present. And the idea is that you imagine a conversation, originally it would be in the underworld for the ancients, between people who lived at different times, and so in life couldn't talk to each other. But now in the underworld, you know, Socrates can talk to Voltaire, you know, and they can argue about questions of ultimate interest that not only they couldn't in life because they didn't live at the same time, but because in life you're always constrained by the needs of your particular moment or life, time in your life or society, and so you don't get the essence of the question. It's um, so clear. So the dialogue of the dead was invented in order to overcome those difficulties and imagine such conversations. Well, I, I tried to do that with the whole Russian tradition. That is, I imagined, you know, the, the questions that were asked, say, in the 19th century and then made more explicit in the 20th century, I imagined the conversation among all the great thinkers about the timeless questions, you know, that they would ask each other. So it's not a historical book. It's, you know, that, that would be a different kind of book. This one, you know, doesn't ask you to learn the history. It imagines, you know, what would Dostoevsky say to, you know, Lenin or something like that, right? Um, how do you think about the timeless questions? Because after all, you know, Many people, most people, I think, who read Russian literature are not reading it because they're interested in, you know, Russian history. That's one reason to read it, of course. It'll tell you a lot. But they're mostly looking, I think, if they're not Russian, at least, for wisdom, for timeless wisdom uh, that the Russian tradition is so good at conveying. And the dialogue of the dead, you know, is a, is a good way of getting at that. What explains, as far as you can make out, the origins of Nadanismo, Russian populism, and the Russian terrorism of the 1870s and 1880s? Ah, yes, Narodnichesko. Um, that is, Narod is people, so that's why it gave birth to the word populism. Um, the intellectuals, the intelligentsia, which felt very alienated from society, were very remote from the common people. And so they, the radicals among them tended to idealize the common people, you know, that the common people have all the wisdom in the world. And also, if we can enlighten them with our knowledge, and this is their intuitive wisdom, they can remake society, of course, with us intellectuals leading it. And so many of them went to the countryside, this is called going to the people, mostly in 1874 in the summer, um, hoping that they would talk to them, perhaps even rouse them to revolution, um, educate them. And they found out that the people were nothing like what they thought. They were not repositories of virtue. They didn't want to hear revolutionary propaganda. Some of them turned the intellectuals in. Um, 
And it was a complete fiasco. Well, some of them then decided that they, there was no hope of overthrowing the oppressive regime by enlisting the common people. So they turned to terrorism. That would magnify the effect of their small numbers. Ironically enough, the most important terrorist group called itself the People's Will. But the irony, of course, is that they formulated it because they, the one thing they did not represent was the people's will. The people had rejected them, but they called themselves you know, the people's will. That was the birth of modern terrorism. Um, and they killed a lot of people right, you know, quickly and eventually the czar in uh, 1881. Um, and so that was the birth of, of the Russian terrorist movement in the 1870s you know, as a reaction to... Um, you know, the failure of going to the people. Now, the theme of going to the people was first introduced as an ob- objection or objective by um, Alexander Gerzen or Herzen, in, if you want to translate it into Latin script. Is that correct? Herzen had, um, who was a very influential writer and intellectual, he was in exile publishing this um you know, magazine called The Bell, um, the Bell, you know, arousing people, um, which was smuggled into Russia, had enormous influence in, in the country. Um, and in one of the issues, he called on the intellectuals to go to the people, the common people, and they responded to that. You know, they, they, he was sort of, you know, well, the bell that called them, you see, came, came from him. Herzen was a very... That might sound he's very naive, and maybe in that respect he was, but generally he was a, a very good writer and a very subtle intellect. Now, Turgenev's last novel, I think m- primarily or mostly regarded as being not one of his best, was also about the Narodnismo, its title in English, virgin, or Latin script, Virgin Soil. Yes, that's right. Um, no, it's not one of his best, but it's a very interesting book uh, because of its topic, and you know, it shows a lot of these, um, you know, radical populist terrorists who come off as very naive and, you know, out of touch with reality, openly destructive and self-destructive, but they are contrasted with a person who is sympathetic with their ideals, but is actually very practical and wants to help people in practical, you know, ways, you know, but, you know, he's, you know, a good manager of industry and things like this, you know, um, that's what he thinks should be done. Uh, and, you know, but that was, you know, that kind of middle-class, you know, liberal type solution, which Turgenev believed in was not very popular among the radicals. Why, in your opinion, is Russian literary history, quote, telescoped, unquote? Uh, yes, that's a wonderful, a, a wonderful aspect of the tradition. You know, Russia, one of the interesting things about Russian history is that it initiated a pattern that's been repeated in many countries since. Uh, it, was, it was behind and isolated from the West, you know, until Peter the Great became czar. That was, you know, in the late um, 17th century up to 1725 when he died. And he decided to radically westernize the country overnight, you know, change everything, you know, the calendar, you know, the set up school systems, you know, women would come out of seclusion, you know, 
the world would become secular. There'd be edu- everything would change, the social life, the manners. And so what began was a century of apprenticeship where they were absorbing all this Western knowledge. And all, but that meant that you understand they were absorbing um, things that were written, let's say, 300 years apart in the West. They became simultaneous in Russia because they were absorbed at the same time, you see. Um, and so, you know, everything became very compressed. And then in the 19th century, literature sort of took off at an amazing speed so that, you know, accomplishments, which again took place over centuries, and you know, in England, let's say, were all very compressed and happening very rapidly. And in that case, you know, in that sense, it's all telescoped. Would that explain why you don't really go into or discuss, say, Pushkin or Lermontov or Gogol or, for that matter, Chidayev? Um, well, you know, largely I don't um, discuss them. I'd be yeah, I decided to begin with the reign of Alexander II in 1855, uh, and that's when um, I think the questions, the ultimate questions that would define the tradition, were first really posed. Um, you know, so that what happened before is really interesting. I occasionally allude to it, but if my book is about this conversation about the ultimate questions. It made sense to begin when they were first explicitly formulated. Why was it the case that, as you say, quote, no country valued literature more than Russia, unquote? Why do I say that or why did it happen? <laughs> why, why did it happen? I don't know why it happened. I mean, um, but the Russians are very conscious of that, you know, that Whereas in other countries, you know, knowledge, you'd have, you know, philosoph- professional philosophers and scientists and all different disciplines. In Russia, the locus for discussing everything was to be literature. And so literature had its enormous importance that it's never had anywhere else. Um, but why that happened, I'm just, I don't think anybody knows that, but it certainly did happen. Uh, is that still true today, as far as you're aware of? Or that had changed since the downfall of Soviet Sky Blast, the Soviet Union? Well, it's not as true, but it's still true. You know, literature has this enormous um, importance in Russia, you know, that, that it doesn't have with us. Um, uh, you know, it's not quite as intense as it was earlier, because at the present, you don't have any of the you know, superlatively great writers are some good ones. Um, so it's not quite as, you know, quite as intense. Um, but it's still, by our standards, it, it's still true. Do you agree with Vladimir Nabokov that uh, by looking at literature as in purely the social context, Belinsky egregiously misshaped how Gogol and other writers were to, should be understood as, as writers? That Belinsky shaped how people should see writers. Um, well, well, I should say, I should say, as per Nabokov, misshaped, meaning gave an erroneous social context to literature, which probably should not be viewed in that. <clears throat> well, you know, I know what Nabokov was asked. Uh, he's trying to isolate the part of the 
Russian tradition, which tries to make everything a political statement, you know, social revolution, social reform. And the people who did it that way, um, you know, right for the Bolsheviks, thought Belinsky was their founder. Was his, but in fact, Belinsky was much more complicated than that. You know, so Nabokov is wrong in, about Belinsky in particular, though, right about, you know, the social, socializing of the tradition. Belinsky has amazing, you know, literary abilities. Look, he's discovered Dostoevsky. He's the one who made Pushkin's reputation. He discovered Lermontov. He discovered Turgenev. You, from their first works, you know, you have to have a, a good deal of literary insight to do all that, right? Um, but there was a social, a purely social aspect to his criticism, and that's the part that got um, picked up. With. So, though it's a little simplifying Belinsky, it's um, it does respond to one part of Belinsky. Why were such radical journalists as Dobroyubov and Chernyshevsky so influential? <clears throat> well, that's really interesting. I mean, Chernyshevsky and Dobroyubov—they were, you know, radical thinkers. And in Russia, if you were a radical thinker, you, um, because literature was so important, you did literary criticism and put your radical ideas into the form of criticism of some writer, right? And that's what, the, what they did. And they were, you know, they hit upon the, they were able to formulate the ultimate questions in a way that was very compelling. They were absolutely certain, for example, that there was no such thing as human individuality. Everybody was all the same, that, you know, we had no free will, that everything was materialistic. And somehow that was going to produce liberation and, and, and utopia. And, you know, for a lot of, you know, young people, that idea that we finally have the truth, we can save humanity, um, seemed enormously attractive. Um, and, you know, that was true for generations afterwards. So, um, you know, there's a kind of, religious fervor there, which is not accidental, Chernyshevsky, you know, and many of the radicals that followed were originally either sons of priests, priests can marry in the Russian church, or had studied to be priests in seminaries, and then had lost their faith and become radical materialists, but with the same religious fervor, messianic fervor that religion had provided, they now attributed to materialism. Now, Chernyshevsky is, is a really good case of that. But, you know, sometimes people forget that, you know, among the people who studied in seminaries um, was Stalin much later. And would you say by the turn of the 20th century that the radical journalists like Dubrovnikov and Ali were no longer as influential or as carried much prestige as they did 40 years or 45 years prior? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, what I would say is that among the radicals, they still had every bit as much prestige, but not by this point, you've had many more people who were educated and thought of themselves as you know, a part of the intelligentsia who were not radicals anymore, you know, who were, you know, liberals and not materialists, but, you know, religious or idealists. And they would not have liked Chernyshevsky and, and, and Dobrynyubov, but the radicals, um, People like Lenin, for example, you know, Chernyshevsky was his ideal. He wouldn't, he wouldn't allow any criticism in his presence, you know, of him. Um, and he said he, he made him a revolutionary. So it, you have a broader group, so the prestige is not as great among the broader group, but it is great among the core group, as great as it ever had been.
Now let me ask, uh, is it by coincidence that in uh, Chernyshevsky's uh, novel, What is to be Done, um, that uh, one of the main characters is someone who has a very overtly Tartar name, is that by coincidence or is that something about Chernyshevsky's view about Russians in the words of Lenin one, at a later date, of course, quote, Russians are softies, lazy bones, too kind, unquote. That's really interesting. And I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, but that's why he makes a totter, uh, give a totter name. Um, I'm not sure, you know, um, totter names were, you know, people of totter or, you know, even Persian origin were, were very common. I mean, you know, because the, you know, the, the, when Russia conquered, you know, the Tatar places, you know, their upper classes were absorbed and, and lucified their names. But why he would pick one, I'm not sure why he would pick one, actually, in that case. Lenin certainly could have seen it the way you described. I'm not sure about Chernyshevsky himself. What was meant by the term, terms intelligentsia and intelligent in Tsarist Russia in the 19th century? And how did that change after 1917? Ah uh, yes, that that's that's that that's a core question, a really interesting one. We get the word intelligentsia from Russian, but it, where it was coined about 1860, but it didn't mean what it, we think of when we think of the word intelligentsia in English. In fact, its meaning was almost close to the opposite. Um, it did not mean you know people of independent views people who were skeptical and were, you know, interested primarily in the truth. It meant dogmatic, radical, you know, <clears throat> materialist. You have to be a materialist, an atheist, uh, you know, some form of revolutionary or socialist or anarchist. Um, it was that narrow group that was called the intelligentsia. So that, for example, you know, no one would have considered Leo Tolstoy a member of the intelligentsia. It would have been ridiculous. Now, he's obviously, if it meant just well-educated, he would have been. Nobody's better educated. Um, but he believed in God, and he used his title of count, which is what a revolutionary wouldn't do. And he did not believe that literature should be nothing but, you know, propaganda for radical ideas. Uh, all of that would have completely disqualified him. And he would have said, he did say, he had complete contempt for the intelligentsia, and they certainly would not have regarded him as one of them. Um, so that, that was the core meaning of intelligentsia. But, you know, by the 20th century, that would have been regarded, that group, that original group would have been now called the intelligentsia in the strict sense of the word or the narrow sense of the word, because you could use the word intelligentsia also to me to include people who thought very differently, people who were, you know, intellectual but religious, who were not radical but, let's say, liberal, right? Um, and there were a lot of those. And, you know, Lenin thought they were a real danger. And, you know, so what he thought of them as, you know, scum. And after the revolution, you know, all those people who were not like Lenin were shot or sent into exile, right? And, you know, it then became also impossible at that point, you know, to be a revolutionary against Lenin. Lenin was in power. I mean, right? You know, the revolution were in power, and they didn't allow, you know, anyone to do what they had done in the past. And so 
you know, for a while, the term intelligentsia was a term of reproach. It meant, people, it meant people who were not ironclad Bolsheviks or working class. And then gradually the meaning changed, you know, so that it didn't have that meaning anymore. It could mean, you know, I don't know, but decades later it meant little more than, you know, white-collar workers as opposed to working class. Um, but, you know, people like Solzhenitsyn or Nadezhda Mandelstam hope to revive it in something like the 19th century meaning. Only now opposition would be for people who were truly noble in spirit, for dissidents, for that they might be inspired by God. That is, it have a noble meaning and wouldn't again mean just anybody educated. Uh, and they hope to revive it in that sense and, you know, call it the true intelligentsia and, you know, capture some of the ethos of the pre-revolutionary period, but with opposite content. How is the intelligentsia portrayed in classical Russian literature? <clears throat> oh, you know, well, you know, Dostoevsky portrays them absolutely savagely. Um, you know, they are at best misguided, but at worst they are, you know, extremely dangerous. You know, Dostoevsky was the only person who really foresaw totalitarianism. And, I mean, I mean, in the world, he's the only one who foresaw it at this point, um, because he was focusing on what these people, these intelligentsia would do if they gained power. That's the topic of his novel, The Possessed, which is often considered the greatest political novel ever written. Um, Tolstoy didn't so much consider them dangerous, but he considered them ridiculous, you know, for their na you know, narrow point of view um, of the world. Turgenev wrote about them in a way that was sympathetic, but kind of condescending, you know. Yes, these are nice, you know, people with good ideals, but they're hopelessly naive and, you know, don't understand life. So, you know, there was a, a critic about writing in 1909 who, you know, said a famous line. He said, the surest measure of the greatness of a Russian writer is the extent of his hatred for the intelligentsia, right? And intelligentsia meant, of course, in that narrow sense of, of the radical. And that's a pretty good trigger. The thing of, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov is the truly great writers. That would, that would be true. It is quite noticeable that you do not criticize Dostoevsky for his more egregious writings in Diary of a Writer. Why so? Well, it's about the Diary of a Writer. And, you know, uh, I have a great deal of criticism of, of him in there. You know, when it was taboo to talk about, for example, his anti-Semitism, I, I you know, as a young scholar, was talking about it. We have another article about it um, that just came out in the magazine Mosaic about Dostoevsky's anti-Semitism. Um, uh, it just wasn't the topic of the book, you know. Um, but it's a very important topic. And the development of that, there was closely connected development of Russian nationalism, which is, again, a topic I don't talk about, you know, in the book. But I am planning on doing another book that will talk about all these things and make them the center. Uh, you know, it's a 500-page book as it is. You can't really talk about everything. Point well taken. What did Dostoevsky mean when he referred to in his famous Pushkin speech of 1880, uh, apropos the, quote, Russian wanderer, unquote? <clears throat> yes, well, he had in mind a type of Russian 
I, I have a, you know, I devote a chapter to something very close to this type, and I also call it a wanderer. The type of person who was looking for a purpose in life, looking for a truth that they could live by, but didn't have it. And, you know, in Pushkin's time, it would have been because, you know, they simply were socially very far from the common people, from traditional roots. By the 1850s and, you know, 60s and 70s, there are people who were wanderers in a different sense. They were wandering from idea to idea. Maybe this idea will have the truth. Maybe that idea will have the truth. You know, there were wanderers in, in, in that sense too. But with, with the spirit of, you know, pilgrimage was very common in Russia, right through this period, the sort of pilgrims that you would, you know, were very common in Europe in the Middle Ages were still going on in 19th century Russia. Um, and these were kind of intellectual pilgrims and they sensed their kinship, you know, with the, with the other kind of pilgrims. Would you differentiate the Russian wanderer from uh, the so-called um, superfluous man? Well, that's, a, that's another good question. In the, um, the superfluous man was the sort of type I was describing of, you know, people who felt alienated from society, had felt they had nothing they could do that was significant. They couldn't do politics under the czarist, you know, regime. Um, and, you know, they felt life was pointless. And that, that became the kind of wanderer that Dostoevsky had in mind in, in the Pushkin speech that becomes the hero of several, you know, pieces of Russian fiction from that period, from Lemurs of Sirovar Time and Pushkin's Eugene Onegin, and then, you know, Turgenev has his diary of a superfluous man, which gave the, you know, the type its, its name. Um, but um, by the time, you know, the period I'm talking about, uh, that they're, they're wandering in, in a different way. You know, first of all, they're not all aristocrats who are, you know, alienating, you know, their you know, intelligentsia, had some aristocrats, but most of them were not. Um, and here they were, you know, um, they tended to be ideological fanatics, as those superfluous people did not. The superfluous people didn't have any conviction. They wanted some, whereas these wanderers were, didn't have any firm conviction because they were jolting from ideology to ideology. Um, so they were wanderers in a, in a different sense. Why, I'm sorry, what, what type of an impact did the collection Vieki landmarks have in early 20th century Russia? Uh, yes, Vieki, I think, is one of the most important books, you know, in, to understand Russian thought. I gave it a very prominent position, you know, in my book, because when I first, you know, we had, when I was in graduate school, it wasn't taught, because the, um, the way Russian history was described was the debate between the extreme conservatives and the revolutionaries. But the, the seven people who contributed to the anthology called Landmarks in 1909, they were mostly liberals, as we would say. They, some of them were ex-Marxists. Some of them were, you know, now becoming religious. You know, they believed in the rule of law. Um, and so being different in tone and attitude from the whole rest of the intelligentsia. They criticized it precisely for all those things that, you know, gave it its character, its fanaticism, you know, its sense of 
um, you know, having all the right answers. Um, it's intolerance of diverse points of view. And they tried to, you know, get a more open, modest view of, um, uh, of what, you know, intellectuals should be like. And you can tell that they struck a nerve because there were literally hundreds of, you know, books and articles published almost immediately denouncing them, you know, from almost every political point of view, even other liberals denounced them because most of the other liberals um, still thought of themselves as, you know, members of the intelligentsia, and therefore they were not allowed to criticize anyone who was fanatic, even if they weren't quite as fanatic themselves. Um, and that, the strength of that response, you know, indicates, you know, that they really hit a nerve. And, you know, when things began to open up, you know, in Russia under Gorbachev, people turned back to that book. It couldn't be published in the Soviet period. And it had, you know, people, you know, in an influence Solzhenitsyn who knew about it. Um, this may be the alternative path we should have taken. So it became kind of emblematic of the Russia that could have been, but which the Bolsheviks um, prevented from happening. The essays in it are very interesting. They're profound. They're well written. They're still pertinent, you know, in their, you know, ideas about, because we have similar kind of fanatics always, right? Um, it, it's a real defense of open-mindedness and liberal values, not so much in the way we usually do it here as, you know, by connecting it to um, utilitarianism or, you know, economic liberalism. It's about the ultimate value of the individual and individual freedom. It's kind of a philosophical approach to liberalism. Um, and so it, it helps us understand those values from a different perspective that we usually do. I, I strongly recommend it. Why are you skeptical of recent attempts to salvage the reputation of the one-time terrorist Boris Savinkov? You know, the recent attempt has been to say, oh, you know, he was the fighter for freedom and, you know, because first he over was killing people in the name of the czar and then he, you know, opposed the Bolsheviks at that point. So that, that's why people idealize him. But in fact, you know, first of all, he was, un, you know, he was, this was a terrorist who didn't, I think, have any principles whatsoever. He was pretty clear about that himself. He loved terrorism for its own sake, right? You know, he would say things, you know, to other terrorist groups. Yes, we're supposed to have opposing ideologies and we're supposed to hate each other. But listen, we're all terrorists. Let's go out and kill people together. I, I don't find that terribly admirable, right? Um, uh, you know, and he was a, an interesting character. In, in addition to being a terrorist, he was also a novelist, those being the two most prestigious occupations in Russia at the time. And he wrote novels about terrorism. Uh, and, but these are very interesting novels. They don't so much, you know, they're not sort of fanatical, idealistic novels. They talk about the psychology of terrorism. And as he describes it, 
it is, and I think this fits him, very egotistical. The terrorist does it because he loves terrorism, as, 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 as Sovington himself did, you see. Um, he loved terrorism for its own sake. Um, and, you know, he kept clippings of both his terrorist activities and the reviews of his fiction. He kept them both from day one. So it isn't clear to me whether he, um, you know, wrote wrote novels to celebrate his terrorism or he became a terrorist and material for his novels. But whatever he was, he was kind of a Byronic, extreme, individualist, egotistical hero, you know, and when you combine that with murder, as he did, um, I just don't find that to be terribly admirable. Would it be true to say that Lenin was in love with terror as a mode of politics, indeed, almost to the same level as Stalin? Do you mean, was he as devoted to terrorism as Stalin was? Um, no, I think more so, <clears throat> much more so, if, if that's possible. Um, Stalin gets it from Lenin. You know, uh, Lenin was very clear that he, there would never be the rule of law in Russia. Terrorism was not a temporary expedient. When they were formulating the Russian law code in the, in the early 20s, he told them, the person formulating it, writing it up, to write terror into it as a permanent feature. But terror, of course, is, is extra-legal activity. So the law code contained provisions for extra-legal activities. And that, in fact, was what Stalin was able to draw on. You know, um, he was highly bloodthirsty. He loved, you know, he loved killing for killing. I mean, he, you know, um, Stalin really got this from him. You know, one of the few people who worked for both of them closely was Molotov, and he was once asked about, um, to compare them, and his answer w w was, Lenin was more severe. <laughs> you might have expected the opposite if you're ideologizing Lenin, but Molotov knew, you know, if anyone was more bloodthirsty, it was Lenin. He just didn't live long enough. You know, he died, you know, of a, of a stroke. Um, a series of strokes, you know, in the early 20s. So he didn't have a chance to kill him. But, you know, in the time he was there, he did as well as better than anybody else had ever done before in killing people. Uh, what? I'm sorry. Given the fact that he's the moral hero of, of Boyna and Mir, War and Peace, why do you not discuss the character Platon Karataev? <clears throat> well... So I not discuss him at all? I don't know. I, I, have a, I wrote a book about War and Peace where I certainly discuss him. Um, the, the way Platon Karataev is, you know, a peasant with a certain kind of wisdom whom, um, peasant soldier, whom the hero Pierre encounters, and he learns some wisdom from him. And he's only there very briefly in the book, but some people think, you know, He's Tolstoy's ideal because all wisdom comes from the peasants. I don't think Tolstoy thought that way at all. I mean, I think that's, you know, imposing something on Tolstoy. You know, he knew, and that book also describes peasants who are anything but wise, but rather brutal and, um, you know. But this character has a particular kind of wisdom, which is completely immerse yourself in the present moment. He can't even 
tell his own age. You know, he loves the person he's with, but he forgets the person the moment he's not with him. You know, this is a kind of wisdom about immersion in the present. But if you think about it, it's really horrifying also. You don't remember someone you love 10 minutes later? <clears throat> but that's, um, so, you know, I don't, idealizing Platon Karataev as many people assume Tolstoy did, I think is a mistake. Um, I talk about this a great deal. I wrote a book on War and Peace, you know, um, called Hidden in Plain View, um, where I, I talk about both what's wonderful and what's not so wonderful about Platon Karataev. But I guess we're going to get into this book. Uh, who, I'm sorry, why do you say that Dolly is a true hero of Anna Karenina? <clears throat> yeah, I also remember Anna Karenina talking about that, too. Um, Tolstoy's idea, which has a signature all over it, um, is that the most important events in life are not the grand and noticeable ones. And the most important people are not the dramatic figures. And when you tell the story of your own life, what really makes you who you are is not those, you know, highly memorable moments, but the sum total of ordinary moments and small events that we usually don't remember. And that the people who make ordinary life worthwhile who engage in basic decency and kindness of a non-dramatic sort, they are the people on whom the world really depends, even though nobody pays any attention to them because they're not dramatic. A good mother, for example. Nobody, eh, good mother, fine. Um, but that's, that's who Dolly is. Not the beautiful heroine, not dramatic, not particularly anything, but incredibly decent and devoted you know, to raising your children and to the things that make life worthwhile for Tolstoy's perspective. So if by a hero of a book you mean not the one who occupies the most attention, that's certainly Anna in that book, but the one who embodies the author's or the book's values, then it's Dolly. So she would be the moral exemplar of, of the novel? As close to a moral exemplar as you get. I mean, she's not perfect, she's a human being, but yes. Why do you say, quote, if the study has a hero, it is Chekhov, unquote? <clears throat> oh, of my recent book, Wonder Confront Certainty. Yes, because, you see, well, as you pointed out, Dostoevsky, although he could be very skeptical of intelligentsia, at some point also could embrace fanatical ideas himself of a different sort. And, you know, Tolstoy late in his life did too, Um so their skeptical portions, which are their brilliant portions, are not all that's into them. But Chekhov was always, you know, decent, skeptical, modest, humane, never fell prey to that kind of thinking. Um, and that's why he, he was the hero of the book, of my book. Do you agree with Alexander Solzhenitsyn that the murder of Pyotr Stolypin in 1911 was a key moment in Russian history where the R Russia's path to peaceful modernity was lost? You know, I think that's really worth examining. Um, I'm not completely sure, but I think it's a plausible idea that, you know, Stolypin was the great reformer. And the idea was that if he had been able to carry out his reforms 
and not been assassinated, um, Russia would have avoided revolution. It would have had, you know, enough peasants and others would have now been, had a stake in the current state of affairs. And Russia could have evolved, you know, by reform rather than revolution. And that was Stolypin represented. He was the last chance. He was quite brilliant at it. Um, but once, you know, he was shot, the, the czar, who, you know, Solzhenitsyn describes as an idiot, and probably was, um, you know, was left on his own stupid devices. And that made revolution much more likely. So I, I think Solzhenitsyn's idea is that Stolypin was, represented the Russia that could have been, um, it's plausible. What do you mean when you say that, quote, the greatest Russian writers do not tell us what life's meaning is, but they tell us about the discovery of the same looks and feels like, unquote. I shouldn't catch that. They tell us the, what... Um, they do not tell us what life's meaning is, but they tell uh -huh. us what the discovery of life's meaning feels and looks like. Uh, yes. Right, I see what you're saying. Yes, you see, at the end of let's say Anna Karenina uh, or War and Peace, um, the heroes sense the meaning of life, but it's not. It's not that they discover some philosophical truth that you could paraphrase. You know, the meaning of life can't be something like that you know, some proposition. Because if it were, we'd all, we'd all already know it, right? There'd be nothing to talk about. It's something that you can experience so that the world becomes a different place for you once you experience it. You feel it. It's shown to you. But it's not a series of propositions. And so, you know, that's what happens with Levin or Pierre is that they reach this state and so the reader can see what it is like to have a sense of the meaning of life, to have that happen to you. But you can't learn it just by, you know, memorizing a proposition. You, it's something you have to arrive at by living into it, rather than just by learning it abstractly. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? <clears throat> oh, that's it. What would it be that the ultimate questions, the meaning of life, the nature of freedom, where morality comes from, all those sort of questions are intensely important and wonderful to consider. We won't have any great single definite answer to them, but the more you think about them, the deeper will be your understanding of the questions and the more that depth will inform your life and make it more meaningful. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Morrison, very much. Thank you so much for having me and for asking such wonderful questions.